Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is my good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, it's good to see you. Thanks for making the time. Welcome back. Always happy to make the time. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Also returning to the roundup is John Botton. John is the executive director of the New Dem Action Fund and member services director of the New Dem Coalition. He has worked in two congressional offices, served under three chairs of the House New Democrat Coalition, consulted for numerous Senate and congressional campaigns, and led the communications effort for a special election in upstate New York. John, it's so great to have you back. Good to be back. Thanks for the time. On this week's roundup, We'll discuss Joe Manchin's announcement that he'll vote no on the Build Back Better social policy package. Adam Kinzinger's comment that the January 6th committee is investigating Trump's involvement in the insurrection and other news out of the committee. The latest surge in COVID-19 cases and the Omicron variant. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about CNN's reporting on Trump supporters continuing to canvas the results of the 2020 election as we head into 2022. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. On Sunday, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced that he will not vote for the Build Back Better Act on Fox News Sunday. Manchin has always been a holdout for the legislation, but the news came after months of negotiations between the senator and the White House. According to CNN, President Biden learned of Manchin's plans only minutes before Manchin's TV appearance and tried, unsuccessfully, to reach him on the phone. After the appearance, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki put out a blistering statement for what they called Manchin's inexplicable reversal on the bill. It's being reported that Biden personally signed off on the statement. Manchin cited the cost of the bill as the biggest block to getting his vote. But according to reporting from Huffington Post, Manchin told his colleagues that he thought parents would waste the monthly tax credit payments on drugs instead of providing for their children. After Manchin's announcement, Goldman Sachs told clients that failure to pass the Build Back Better bill would have negative growth implications and projected slower GDP growth in 2022. Also this week, I thought this was interesting, America's largest coal mining union, United Mine Workers of America, put out a statement urging Manchin to revisit his opposition to the bill. So before we dig into what Democrats ought to do next, what did you both make of the announcement and the response from the White House? John, why don't you lead off? Sure, happy to. So the the biggest takeaway uh, that I came with actually came Sunday evening. Um, this is this is high drama for Washington D.C. Uh, these sorts of back and forths are not uncommon, especially in pieces of legislation this big. Um, but I think what we saw on Sunday was there was a big response from both sides. There was a lot of hubbub, and then by Sunday evening, uh, the president and Senator Manchin were back on the phone, and there was a, a call to continue moving forward from a lot of the vested parties, uh, certainly folks within the New Dem coalition and elsewhere, saying, I'm "Not ready to throw in the towel on this. Let's get to work and get this done." So. There is still that glimmer of hope out there, but uh, yeah, high drama in the most extraordinary way possible. And I think we're going to continue to see that as we move forward. Mike? Yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a big believer that you usually see these types of scenarios play out right before a deal's about to get done. It, it, it always looks impossible and that it's blown up right before it all comes together. This, First of all, look, this is an enormous bill. Yeah. And Manchin wasn't screwing around. He's saying this is too big. (laughs) However you articulate it, this is just, it's too much. I just can't get there. This is a dramatic reformation of of a whole lot of things. I mean, this is not just about a spending bill. It's it's enormous. And he's been saying that there are concerns. I think really what the question becomes is, uh, was he negotiating in good faith because of the way things stalled out and the way that the White House heard about it? Now, I personally like the way the White House responded to him. <laughs> I know there's a lot of pushback on social media saying this isn't appropriate because it was so hard hitting. Take the gloves off, man. Slug it out a little bit. Like, this is serious stuff. Let's have this fight. Let's fight it out. 
but again, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I've been around long enough to know that this is really part of the kabuki dance. To think that this is all completely over, I think, is silly. Whether it's done in pieces or whether it's done in a smaller package, something is going to get done. We're going to get there. But this is part of the negotiations, and I think it's part of part of the interesting part of Washington politics. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but I, I think the the you know the epitaph has been written a little bit too early for the Build Back Better bill. It'll probably just be a smaller bill. Yeah, you know, but uh, Lene Erickson, our friend Lene Erickson at Third Way, said something recently to the Atlantic that was basically exactly what both of you just said, which is a. Like moments like these happen like five times before a big deal gets done. So, you know, don't like hold your breath. It's, you know, we're not, it's not over yet. Uh, She also said something else that was interesting, which I totally agree with, uh, which is, um, well, first of all, Mike, you know, she noted that the bill is extremely severable and scalable because there's, it's not one giant package. Well, it is, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that can be compartmentalized, right? You can peel off what's really unpopular and you can get something done. And that was essentially her message, get something done. Uh, She also noted uh, that Democrats need to show that they're focused on the things that voters care about right now, namely inflation and the economy. And I wonder if you think uh, sort of would the package as it currently sits with or without the child tax credit have any impact on the midterms? Um, you know, would, would extending something like the child tax credit or providing dental coverage as part of Medicare help Democrats going into the midterms or are these policy things just, do they not matter anymore? I don't think they matter anymore. I mean, you know, I've been a pretty consistent voice on that is nobody is going to be voting in the midterms based off of the build back better bill. It's just not going to happen. It, is, it was kind of like the mythology about the, the transportation bill getting done could have saved McAuliffe in Virginia. That's just bullshit. It's nonsense. It's a complete, it's a beltway under, you know, understanding of the way that this thing works. Nobody is clamoring for these things. Now, I will say this, if the economy is on better ground, then, you know, that, that will have a, a different, um, you know, impact on, on the mood of the electorate. But I think it's a it's a pretty difficult correlation to make that somehow voter psychology is going to say, oh, it's the Build Back Better bill that saved the economy, made things better. That's just that's that's nonsense. That's just not the way this works, especially when Republicans and the Republican base are having a very different conversation. Right. What the midterms are going to come down to largely is, of course, the redistricting stuff and the way the numbers are carved out in different states. But more importantly, the turnout model. And again, to, to think that the, that medium-low propensity Democrats are going to be motivated by the Build Back Better bill is just, it's, it's silly. It's very, very inside the beltway thinking, and it really demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of voter psychology and what motivates people to get to the polls. That doesn't mean that you know, I'm making a prediction one way or the other on what turnout's going to look like, but what I am predicting is that the Build Back Better bill will probably be forgotten in a month, certainly long time before the midterms. Yeah, John, I wonder why this is a thing that Democrats keep returning to. I, we we saw it in Virginia. We saw you know some people, which I think was 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 wrong, uh, say that well we lost Virginia because we didn't get the you know the infrastructure bill done in time. Or why is it that Democrats? First of all, do you agree disagree? But why is it that Democrats keep thinking that well this policy thing that we're going to get done is going to change everybody's minds about us? Yeah, well, at the risk of um, proving my correct that I don't understand voter psychology, um, you know, I I might take a slightly different approach to it. Um, You know, is there one specific policy that in in and of itself is going to rescue Democrats' chances of holding back the majority? Probably not. Um, But the passage of something like Build Back Better could have some cascading effects that would be important to the midterms. For example, uh, instead of watching Democrats... uh, fight and play this drama out on on television every day. They would see them actually legislating, governing, doing the responsible activities of governance that that people keep saying they want us to do, even if they don't know necessarily 100% of what's in the bill by any means. Um, I think that is probably important. Uh, To the degree there is an economic bump from uh, the legislation that gets passed, that's going to have, that would have a clear effect. And I think people could probably draw the line at some level to, hey, Congress finally got something done. And I think they passed that infrastructure bill and we are starting to see some positive movement around wages and they're taking action on inflation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there probably also is is something to be said for um, 
uh, I guess we'll say just motivating the, the Democratic base in general. The, to Mike's point about low propensity Democratic voters, there might not be a ton of movement in that space, but there is a hunger within the Democratic base right now to get excited and do things. What we saw in Virginia is Democrats did turn out in a pretty big way, but Republicans turned out in a bigger way. Uh, and that is a problem moving forward. So um, to the degree that, the, you know, any one thing is going to get this done, you know, probably not. Um, and I, I, I'll put a fourth caveat on it, which is Democrats, if they do, if we do get this passed, and I think that is that is where we're headed and where everybody is hopeful this is headed, then it has to be sold effectively. Yeah. And that is a whole different challenge and a whole different ball of wax. And, and we'll see what we get there. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Whether they do or don't get something passed. I agree with you. If they do, then they have to, as James Carville put it in the same Atlantic piece, they need to go out there and aggressively sell what they have done. Even if they don't get this bill passed, 2021 was a remarkable year for jobs growth. And that story hasn't been told. And so I wonder, you know, do you agree Democrats ought to go out there and say, I think they should lead with, yeah, prices are rising, inflation hurts, and we feel your pain, and here's what we're going to do about it. Or here's what we've just done about it, right? It, do you, you, that's the messaging that I would lead with. And, and, and I wonder if A, you agree, B, you think we'll, we'll see Democrats, you know, come out with something as cohesive and aggressive uh, as that, instead of leading with, here are some great social policies that we got done, which is, it's just, it's just not effective messaging. Uh, I do think that is where we ultimately end up. I do think that is, that is probably a correct approach. There's, there's an addition to that, which is, we feel your pain. Yes, inflation is up. Here's what we're doing about it. Not for nothing. Part of the reason inflation is up is wages are up. We have a we have lowest unemployment, you know, historically low unemployment. There's a lot of flashing green lights in the economy right now that we're definitely not talking enough about. So, getting getting in the weeds with people on the stuff that they're really concerned about is important. We know they're concerned about COVID. We know they're concerned about rising prices, and also taking a win for a win because uh, there have been some good things that have been happening over the last year. So, kind of taking all that together, yes. The nice thing about a midterm, and this cuts both ways, is 435 members get to go home and message in their own way for their own district with their own constituencies. And sometimes the things they say are going to drive other members crazy, and sometimes the things they say are going to be spot on. So it will be a mix, and trying to get everybody to sing off the same sheet of music is its own special challenge. But absolutely, I think that's the right message, and I think that's where we're headed. Good point. Okay, one more thing. As you mentioned on Monday, uh, Manchin suggested that the Democrats rework the agenda by moving the legislation through Senate committees and focus on rolling back the Trump tax cuts. So can you help us understand the difference in process for a bill moving through the usual course of Congress and the way the current bill was negotiated? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a I guess let me take a, taking a step back. There were a few different ways to to run this type of legislation. One would be what people continue consider regular order, where various committees in both the House and the Senate hold extensive markups, put together large packages. Both the House and Senate pass legislation that is then um, um, moved to a, a conference committee, and differences between the two houses are worked out. It passes, but a final version passes, and it moves to the president's desk. Um, Moving through the reconciliation process is a is a different animal, and and it, what it has meant is shorter timelines. Um, you know, there occasionally there are fewer hands on the ball as as the the legislation's coming together. Um, and I think some of that, really, what we're talking about here is a question of timelines. Um, and that the process that you just that you just suggested is potentially a longer one, and that's you know that that comes with its own challenges. Okay, I know I said one more thing, but actually one more thing this time. Uh, I also noted that the, uh, I think it was the frontliners, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this um, as it comes to the Democrats' strategy in House races, but they all came together and said, no, we actually have to get something done. Can you talk a little bit about the pressure that the caucus will be under because of the races that that these guys are up against uh, in 2022 uh, that they might be facing? Yeah, I think there's two things to understand here. One is the House has already taken a vote on the Build Back Better Act, on a version of the Build Back Better Act. Uh, so to the degree there is negative messaging coming from the Republican side about what is in this bill and um, you know all of the, the various spins they will put on each and, each and every policy that's in there, those votes have already been cast. So at some level, you know, the, the people who have taken those votes are going to take the hits for the things that Republicans don't like about this bill. So the, the the hope is that you get the final package over the finish line. So more importantly, you get to take credit for all of the good things that are actually in there, uh, not just taking the hits for a vote that you may have taken, but taking credit for the things that you delivered. So it has become more important than ever that this gets done. 
Okay. Can I, can I jump yeah, in real quick here? Yeah. Um, because this is really, I think, a fascinating discussion. And if, if listeners have not read the Atlantic piece that you're talking about that has Linnae and Carville's yeah. you know, advice on how to approach this, it really is very insightful. It's an extremely quick read with kind of some, um, you know, five or six kind of leading Democratic thought leaders on what the Democrats need to do to kind of get things turned back around. I pushed this out on social media and tweeted that you guys need to start listening to Carville because everyone else basically is trying to have this policy discussion under this belief that we can go back to the voters and prove that this is what we got done for them. That is not the way voters think. And that's why Democrats so often get their asses kicked. And what I really, against, against ridiculous, against, you know, I'm reminded back when I was doing Republican campaigns, I was like, how, how easy this is. Because look, Democrats <laughs> fundamentally believe in the institution of government. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that. So they believe that if they come up with the right policy solutions, and, 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 and I'm not saying this isn't the right way to, to think. I'm just trying to demonstrate the differences here. And I learned this at the Lincoln Project when we're talking to you know, some of the largest Democratic donors in the country and some of the best Democratic minds in, in, in national campaigns. They are all focused on saying, what are the policy solutions to address real people's needs in the, in the world? And I'm, and I'm just, as a Republican, going, wow, it's fascinating to watch these guys in their natural habitat because – we're just talking about how to win the damn campaign. We could care less about these policy solutions. And it's why Democrats and Republicans are having very different conversations. It's why Republicans can talk about Mr. Potato Head and culture wars. And it looks so completely absurd for Democrats going, what the hell is happening to these people? And yet they're still winning races, like in Virginia, by a pretty good margin. And it's because they are setting the frame of the debate. And it's not based on what is happening in Washington, D.C. A lot of Democrats don't even believe, Democratic voters don't even believe that what is coming out of Washington, D.C. is actually impacting their life. And as a result, what you have to do in a campaign construct is you have to set the frame of the debate. You have to choose the battle terrain on which you're going to engage in the fight. And if you do not do that, I don't care what you get done in Washington, D.C., it does not matter. So read that piece. I don't know if you can link to yeah, it we'll, or not, we'll, Ron. We'll link to it in the show notes. It. Read yeah. what Carvel says, because what he's saying is how to demonstrate um, the, the best way to push the Republicans into the right zone, into the right place to set the frame um, most advantageously to have the fight in the midterms, which are going to be difficult anyway. Into a frame where you have a chance at winning. That's and that should yeah. be the goal right now. What the Democrats are doing, it's not, it's not, it's not you know childcare credits and it's, it's just not the way that this works. And I, 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 it's it's frustrating to watch just having been on both sides of these fights for thirty years, and to see how very differently both sides approach this. And it explains once you understand it that that the, the the battle is really won or lost in what the frame of the discussion is and if you're fighting on your ground whatever that ground is that we're learning it doesn't even have to be based in reality anymore okay but you have to at least understand the framework of the battle that's being engaged because if you do not trying to explain why this component or that component of Build Back Better that we passed nine months ago has improved your life and why you ought to vote uh, for the Democrats is, is a fool's errand. It doesn't work. I totally agree. And I would just add one thing to that, which is when Democrats look at Republicans focusing on the culture wars, like you mentioned, Mr. Potato Hood, they have to guard against that incredulousness becoming disdain and contempt for the voter. And that's yeah. too often what happens. You see that in the way they talk about people yes. uh, as opposed to just changing the frame, focusing on changing the frame. Exactly. Have your own debate, have your own discussion on, the, on, a, on your terrain. It doesn't need to be like, wow, that's just really dumb. What are you guys even talking about? Because both sides are having very different conversations. They're in different media bubbles. They've got different value systems. They're approaching things differently. And in a, in a place and a time in American history we're getting Republican turnout is going to keep this part of the Republican party in power in all likelihood in the midterms and going into the 24 election cycle with the way the electoral college is constructed. There's no luxury. There's no luxury to, to not, you know, think about it that way. 
That is a perfect segue. Let's talk about January 6th. And listeners, I know we've been talking about January 6th a lot on this podcast, uh, but I'm not sorry. We're going to continue to talk about it. Uh, And that's because it isn't getting enough attention elsewhere. And so if it feels like we're beating a constant drum about this, well, we are, and we're going to keep doing that. So on Sunday, Congressman Adam Kinzinger said that the January 6th committee is investigating whether former President Donald Trump committed a crime with his involvement in the riot. Kinzinger said that by the end of the investigation and when they release their report, they'll have a pretty good idea about whether Trump committed a crime. Also this week, the January 6th committee asked a sitting member of the House, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, to voluntarily sit for an interview with the panel. This is the first known effort by the panel to talk to a lawmaker about their efforts to help Trump undermine the election. Perry declined to speak with the committee voluntarily, but the committee stopped short of saying it would issue a subpoena in their statement condemning Perry. Compelling a sitting legislator to speak to the panel could dramatically escalate the political tensions between the committee and Republicans. Um, First, what did you both make of, of Kinzinger putting it so plainly that the committee will be investigating Trump's role and potential crimes related to the insurrection? John? Well, I think what he what he put his finger on is uh, the breadth and scope of what is happening. But what I what I am struck by is the difference between this investigation and these activities, and say, looking backwards, the Benghazi hearing or others that were much more public, much more forward facing. Um, this is very much a legal endeavor and not a political endeavor. There are interviews happening behind closed doors. Lawyers are being meticulous about evidence. There are. Um, you know, <laughs> lawyers from both sides are negotiating uh, what, what evidence is going to be put forward and what interviews are going to happen and not. And to the degree that any additional action is taking like uh, con- uh, contempt of Congress, those are, are votes that are happening, but they're they're here and gone the next day. So this has not been a political activity. And what I think we are uh, what we are seeing is a kind of meticulous process that is coming to a somewhat bookish conclusion over the next couple of months. And I, I think Mr. Kinzinger really put his finger on on how wide this could go. I think bookish is a really important word here because we need to be very clear, and I think we talked about this last week, that this uh, that there are two investigations, there are two separate tracks that are happening. And one of the key things to remember is that the committee investigating, uh, the committee, uh, the J6 committee is investigating potential crimes and it cannot prosecute crimes. It can, at the end of its uh, proceedings, issue a report. Uh, it might be a book uh, in the same way that the 9-11 Commission report was a book that you could buy at Barnes & Noble. Um, but any prosecution will have to come from the Justice Department. So, Mike, what was your reaction and how should we be thinking about the division of the investigation and potential prosecution? Well, look, what John said and what you articulated is very important because it is going to be very different than what we saw during the impeachments, right? This is not a, this is not ultimately going to fall on Congress. But if you're listening to what Liz Cheney says, for example, on the floor, she's articulating word for word what the language is that they're looking at in terms of prosecuting a crime, in terms of obstructing the work of Congress. And they're trying to build with evidence the case that the president violated the law. And and look, there's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth uh, on with people who are watching this very closely about running out the clock and where's Merrick Garland and what the hell's going on and let me light my hair on fire and run in circles and they're being extremely methodical uh, again as John said bookish I think is the right way to put it um, because this is going to the Department of Justice and everybody knows that in, in that on that committee they know that there's a very good likelihood that the Republicans will take over. And start up a whole new brouhaha. They basically said we're gonna we're gonna put Fauci up before Congress, or we're gonna find out the origins of COVID, and we're gonna go back after Hillary Clinton on Benghazi, and they're gonna do whatever they're gonna do. Right? It's gonna be a circus. But if there is enough of an evidence trail that goes into into the Department of Justice, it is outside of Congress's hands. And if there is evidence of a crime, which my strong suspicion is there is and will be, they will find it over the course of the next few months. Doesn't matter who's in control of Congress, and that's the ultimate objective. That's where that's where the, the Democrats are heading. That's where Cheney and Kinzinger are heading. That's why they're both articulating that publicly, 
by saying we're looking for a crime, a crime that we can prove in a court of law, not necessarily in Congress for impeachment, because we know that the political system does not work. We've tried it twice. Uh, and so let's get it out of these hands. But through this process, we can keep that refrigerator hum, right? And I think they're handling the, the refrigerator hum, as we've talked about before yeah. with the viewers. People are Just, tweeting about the refrigerator hum now. Yeah, it's this steady <laughs> flow of information being leaked out by the committee. A masterful job. Every day, there's more news stories that they're feeding uh, out into the atmosphere, which is exactly the right thing to do. This constant bleed, this constant awareness that something is going on, that big things are brewing, that big things are developing, but they're building the case for the Department of Justice. I think Merrick Garland takes this extraordinarily seriously. He's not going to act in haste, nor should he. If we do decide to prosecute, we as Americans, as a, as, a, as a government, decide to prosecute a former president, you damn well better have this thing airtight and, and locked down because it will be um, a, a, a new phase in American history. It will be a challenge and a threat to our democracy. It'll be a trauma to the system. But it will be traumatic for the, for the country. It'll be extraordinarily divisive, especially when you're going to have um, – the the accused probably using that opportunity to run for president and claim that there's a conspiracy and it's all about politics and it's it's an abuse of the legal system which of course he's all going to do and it's really going to challenge and and rattle the undercarriage of our institutions some of some of the the, the those institutions that did and have held on which are which are you know justice which is our our legal system the judicial branch are, are going to be threatened. They're going to be challenged. And I think Garland is extraordinarily aware of that. I think the members of Congress are aware of that. And so they are building a legal case, not a political case, as they should be. I think something you just said bears repeating um, and underscoring, uh, which is, uh, I would say, you know, politicology listeners, you need to brace yourself for what it will look like if and when Trump runs on the fact that he's being prosecuted. Not runs from it, runs on it. Mm -hmm. Imagine what that campaign would look like and imagine what, what that would put the country through. Mm -hmm. think, think about that. It's coming. It's coming. Okay, I was um, really struck this week um, by a column, you know, this <laughs> speaking of um, extreme trauma to the country as if we haven't been through enough. Uh, this column by Dana Milbank uh, in the Washington Post about how close we could be to a civil war. Barbara F. Walter, a political science professor at the University of California at San Diego, and she is a member of the CIA advisory panel that monitors countries around the world and predicts which are most at risk for deteriorating into violence. It's called the Political Instability Task Force. And this panel cannot assess what's happening in the United States per the CIA's mandate. But Walter has applied the predictive techniques herself. Um, and she has a new book out in January. But the bottom line is that she says applying these uh, criteria show that we're closer to a civil war than anyone would like to believe. And if you were, apply, if you were to apply the same checklist that the U.S. uses to assess countries like Venezuela, you'd see that we've entered dangerous territory. And we've already gone through the first two phases of insurgency, which is the pre-insurgency and the incipient conflict phases. And that only time will tell if the final phase, which is the open insurgency phase, uh, began on January 6th of this year, and we might already be in it. She notes that due to the deterioration over the last five years, the United States no longer technically qualifies as a democracy, according to the CIA's own tools for classification. She says we're now at an anacracy, A-N-A-A-N-O-C-R-A-C-Y, anacracy, which is uh, between a democracy and an autocratic state. We've dropped from a score of 10, which is the top score, to a five. A five-point drop in five years greatly increases the risk of civil war. And according to Walter, a partial democracy is three times as likely to experience civil war as a full democracy. Walter's study comes after the Stockholm-based International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance put the U.S. on a list of, quote, backsliding democracies. Now, I say all this not to alarm anyone, just to look at the way uh, 
the the way the same criteria that we that we use to assess other countries um, net out when we apply them to our own. And Mike, I know it's extremely dangerous to start using the term civil war because it's kind of a powder keg, right? Once that once that term begins to be bandied about casually, it you know it, it has the risk of becoming a you know self manifesting. Uh, prophecy, whatever that's you know, whatever that's called. So, so I want to be very careful with this, but I also want to look at her findings soberly. And I would like to. Know, you and I have talked about this many times, mostly in private. Um, we talked about it a bit recently on a two-part conversation we had when we were together in person. I'd love to know how you're thinking about um, not just the material, the substance uh, that she's talking about, but also how careful we need to be in how we discuss um, something as serious as this. Look, there, there's, um, there's a lot of political scientists looking at this right now, a lot of academic studies that are coming out. read a, a, a few of them last night that are basically saying uh, the opposite, which is we don't meet a lot of the characteristics socially for a nation state that is going to devolve into, into a civil war. Here's my opinion. Um, there are different wars look very differently. Okay. Are we going to have one red team and one blue team lining up with muskets and shooting at each other in battlefields across America? No, that's not going to happen. Are we going to live in a prolonged place where red states and blue states are constantly pushing at those institutions again that have held us together as union? Yes, we we already are. When you saw Texas, for example, moving on private rights of action related to abortion, um, and then California responding with private rights of action on assault rifles, um, and then New York saying, we, we may do this with sexual abuse. When you start to have red states and blue states, which are becoming redder and bluer, starts to push the boundaries of our very interaction together, that threatens union. And, and it, it's really, it, it sounds like a very abstract and academic concept because it has been for 150 years. But we are a United States of America, right? We think of ourselves first and foremost as this one country, and we are, but we're really 50 states that are in union with one another. As that dissolves, that can become a type of warfare. It could be cyber warfare. It could be open hostility. It could be legal warfare. It could be, and this is where I think we already are, by the way, in a cultural war. You'll notice that all of these private rights of action are not for economic interests, although that will ultimately become a weapon as states like California stop allowing for state travel to certain states that have you know, imposed certain social or cultural standards. But what we're fighting is a cultural war. We're already in it. It's already happening. The question is, how much worse is it going to get? And will it lead ultimately to what we envision war being, which is violence? And as I have said before, I do believe there are going to be increased instances of violence. I think that there will be domestic terrorism will continue to rise. We will see, I think, in the next few years, unfortunately, violent acts against members of Congress. We've seen a 170% increase in this year uh, alone in, uh, since January 6th, just exploding numbers of threats to members of Congress. We're going to see violence against local elected officials throughout the country. P the public square is already being used as a place to shout down and violently intimidate and threaten public health officers as it's related to COVID, school board members as it relates to critical race theory, all of these things are signs of an increasing engagement towards, quote unquote, warfare. So I say that because it's really, everybody has their own impression of what, what a civil war would look like. Again, it's not going to be red versus blue, lined up guns shooting at each other between the California and Nevada border or, you know, uh, you know, Texas and New Mexico. It's, 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 the, the chances of that are extremely, extremely remote. but. Are we going to pressure the boundaries of what has kept us together as a United States of America? I think over the course of the next 20 years, we absolutely are going to. 
And what really exacerbates this is it's not economic or geographic questions per se. It's a cultural conflict, which makes this very difficult to reconcile. And so uh, I, I, I'm not looking at like poverty statistics the way that, uh, you know, um, political scientists are. I, I, I don't think most political scientists are looking at this. They're looking at it through the lens of what other nation states have historically gone through. Uh, as they've devolved into civil war, I think what's happening in this American experiment is a little bit unique in that it is not um, – it's it's a first world nation that is really arguing to an extreme degree about first world problems, about cultural conflict. And, and I, I think that's probably a little bit unprecedented, and it's why I don't think they have a perfect – answer to it. So I'm sorry about the long, long wind up there uh, again, that I often get engaged in here on our, on these conversations, but it is important. I think we are in the midst of a cultural civil war at the moment. And I think it's going to get more heated, not less. John, how are you processing all of this? Um, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts, given your day job and uh, you know, when you, when you put all of that work in against the backdrop of, of what we're talking about, how do you think about it? Well, just to be clear, I was, I was not on Capitol Hill on January 6th. You know, I watched because of the COVID, uh, shutdowns, I was working from home and I watched it, uh, on television, like anybody else, there is uh, a special kind of fear and surreal environment to watching a place you've worked in for 15 years, get smashed into in that kind of way and to worry about all the people who are inside. Um, and certainly there, there was a lot of that to go around. Um, I, you know, you, you, we started this, uh, podcast, uh, with you describing us as a, as a panel of experts. I, I feel embarrassingly ill-equipped to answer questions related to where this may all be headed. And I, you know, be, my, my world is in the public policy and communication sphere. That is what I have done for 15 years. And I think what we are, what we are seeing as new um, political tactics related to cyber warfare and leaking of stolen documents and misinformation, um, it is scary stuff. And it is a different realm than what most people in our profession, our various professions have had to, had to deal with over the last couple of decades. Um, not to say that there weren't dirty tricks in the past, not to say that there weren't uh, tough environments in the past, or certainly discord. That is that is the nature of democracy. Um, but a lot of this is very new. And what I what I think happens is if you if you the way this bears out in polling uh, is January six and fear of of what a Republican takeover might look like generally doesn't rank as high as concerns about COVID and kitchen table issues and all the other things that get talked about. Partially because people are very directly concerned about what is hitting their wallet, but also I think everybody is wildly unequipped to answer some of these questions. We're all kind of looking at our TVs and our phones and our Twitter streams and going, what the heck is going on? Uh, and that is a very scary place to be. And it's a very tough place to get people engaged if they can't get their arms around the problem. Yeah. Um, how, Mike, should we be thinking about how we attempt to uphold democracy, to uphold union, and how should we expect uh, a backslide in the U.S. to impact democracies globally? This is something you've talked about before. Yeah, and uh, and it's something that I think about a lot because of the geopolitical situation, especially with the rise of China and the increasingly aggressiveness of the Russians. And what's happening uh, in, in the Ukraine right now is, it, uh, along with a rising authoritarian movements around the world, uh, we are entering or we are in, I think, this period of human history as the, the digital you know, revolution kind of comes full circle, um, where democracies and kind of the slow deliberative process with the many filters that we have built in an American-style democracy um, may not be very well suited for this age in terms of policymaking and, the, and, and either the rapidity which is required, the fast-moving sense of, of action that needs to be taken, Good example is COVID and handling the, you know uh, an, an outbreak and, and and mandating people you know take a vaccine for example in a, in a democracy we value much higher than a mandate the discourse and the discussion about it you know regardless of of how how strong or weak the evidence may be we 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 value those equally and that has been a strength it was certainly a strength through the 
you know, do an agriculturally based economy and then do the industrial economy. And as we head into this digital age when networks are more important and as we are increasingly interconnected, democracy and the filters that we've built in to protect from mob rule become kind of more of a constraint uh, over everything else. So, look, I think what we're, in many ways we talk about democracy and the threats to, to democracy as the most imminent threat. And I think that um, that it is a very serious one. But what is probably of graver concern is is the the constitutional um, protections that we're we're really looking for, especially those enshrined in in, in the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, is those protections, uh, which is really uh, the the defining characteristic of American style democracy, um, or the American experiment. So so democracy, of course, don't get me wrong, right? I don't want to say it's not important. It's extremely important, but our constitutional protections, I would argue, are even more important than the democratic system that we're talking about. And so pres- preserving those, preserving uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness um, through, through delineated, articulable, concrete examples that the government is literally set up to protect the private individual for is, is what we are, one, I think, charged with protecting and is probably the most immediate concern. Um, you and I have talked about this at great length, protecting privacy, the inherent um, nature of privacy in the digital era is increasingly going to become of paramount importance as we lose our data, as we lose our information to both private companies and governments and transnational efforts. So I think that the best way to preserve democracy and our constitutional liberties will increasingly in this century be focused on how much control we have over our own personal uh, data, our own private um, information that we're all putting out onto the grid every moment that we're on on our phones, you know, kind of offering up everything about us. Um, because barring that, most of the other protections that we have are basically inconsequential. Uh, which is which is really profound if you think about it. It's, it, it. All of our your other rights go away once you lose that right to your to privacy, that right to your own data, that right to be autonomous and not be part uh, swallowed up completely by the grid. That's not human nature. Our, our our evolutionary processes have never allowed for this kind of an environment. That's not what the founding fathers were fighting for during the Revolutionary War. This was just not conceivable. Um, and we're also at a time, sorry again to about going on too long, but you know, technology companies are a bigger threat to our individual liberties than government is because they have a, a much deeper grasp and a greater ability to both get and coerce our data or simply we just give it up to them. And so companies know a lot more about us as individuals and as groups than the government ever has. And so it changes the nature of things like conservatism or being for or against smaller or bigger government. They become less relevant discussions because the government isn't the greatest threat to personal liberties as much as private companies are. And I think in many ways that's kind of been a big part of the devolution of the American right is the old fight against government is no longer the biggest threat. Um, it's, it's, it's private companies. It's why you see the Josh Hawley's and the Ted Cruz's fighting against big tech. And that has become a big part of the American right is it's really a fight, a grasp to protect individual liberty through protecting privacy rights. So Mike, you couldn't have set up a better segue to the next, uh, segment because we're going to have a discussion about COVID and this, what you're talking about is at the heart of the raging fight over COVID, what is now, frankly, the most political issue that should never have been political from the beginning, and it's over privacy and autonomy and where the tension is between the individual and the state. And whether it's the individual and the state or the individual and the federal government, it is it it is it's a perfect microcosm, I think, of the tension that you're describing, but it's a different dimension. Is instead of data, we're talking about bodies. And we're going to dive into some of the recent news about COVID. But you know, before we get into that, I I just I have to vent a little bit. Um, maybe not vent. I just want to express how frustrated I am that we're still talking about COVID. And I I 
um, I recently saw a clip of Shep Smith on CNBC talking about how tired he is of talking about COVID. And I was like, yeah, actually, I feel exactly the same way. I'm, 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 I'm exhausted by it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to talk about it on the show. I, I'm I'm sick of the 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 constant fighting over vaccines and and the restrictions that don't make sense for vaccinated people, but we're doing them anyway. And I hear this a lot from my vaccinated friends who are far left of center, who are like, you know what? If unvaxxed people aren't going to get vaccinated, then I don't care anymore. Just remove the restrictions let them suffer the consequences and let's be over this thing because we've done all the things right. We've followed all the rules. We're continuing to follow all the rules and we, this can't go on forever. And I really, really feel that the Omicron variant has become the dominant version of the coronavirus in the U S um, on Monday, the CDC announced that Omicron accounted for 73% of new infections in the last week. That's up from 13% of cases the week before. And while there's still a lot more research that needs to be done, right now it looks like uh, Omicron has a shorter incubation period, which could contribute to its faster spread. And while recent surges and infections have caused the NFL, the NBA, and college athletic teams to postpone games, um, I think the NHL, the NHL is pausing games for several days. There's also been a rush of cancellations at Broadway shows uh, due to breakthrough cases um, within the performing companies. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said there's no plan to shut down in New York State. Uh, she said that vaccines, boosters, and masking could spare the state altogether um, from another shutdown. She also pledged to keep the schools open. Um, which you, nobody can agree on that. I mean, it's, it's extremely, all of this is extremely political. It just is now. Um, Politico reported attendees at the Democratic Governors Association were concerned about frustration and COVID fatigue. That's what, that's the way they're talking about it. And Mike, I can't help but think about this fight, this thing that, that just, invades every part of our lives far beyond the public health uh, implications. It's invaded our discourse, our politics. Um, you know, I have taken a stroll around uh, some social media accounts that I would normally never expose myself to just to see what people are saying. And it is frightening what the conspiracists are talking about. I mean, they see these restrictions as leading to genocide now, or, you know, we're on the pathway to just, it's just, it is unhinged. And I, I see it as, um, again, a microcosm of exactly the kind of tension that you were describing in our last segment. And, um, I, I don't, I don't really care to talk about the the science or the, or, or you know, but, but I do want to talk about this from a political angle today. And, and I'm, uh, curious about how how you interpret this, and feel free to talk about your own experiences too. John, do you want to do you want to go first? More than happy to. Um, you know, I I think what we are seeing is um, there is a broad spectrum of the space that people inhabit as they respond to COVID. Everything from the it's a hoax on one far extreme to people who haven't left their house except the three times they went to get their jabs since this whole thing started. Uh, and most people are sort of treading in the middle. And what, what this boils down to is a quest for normalcy, for certainty, and for trust. Um, and the first two, normalcy and certainty, are just, at, for the moment, out of reach. And that is incredibly frustrating. And if you are a, an elected official, if you're a public official uh, working in the immunology space, working in public health, um, it is tough to tell people that every, you know, we know where this is going and everything's going to be okay because we don't, it's new. There are new variants and changes and we're still working on treatments, right? There's, there's so much happening in this space that it's tough to communicate where we're going. And then you have the trust element, the do we trust doctors? Do we trust the information coming out of the government? Do we trust each other? We've seen talk about fake vaccine cards and all of the various things that have gone right. Like this ability to trust one another through this process is really broken down. In some ways, it's it's disappointing because this this could have been an opportunity per our earlier discussion, right? So this an outside force that we all have to respond to collectively could have been a driving moment for people to come together and 
and sort of look past some of the differences to, to do some, some collective good. Um, and that's clearly not where we're not there. But also to our earlier conversation about not taking credit, um, we do have 200 million roughly fully vaccinated individuals. And so the conversation we're having right now around masks and distancing and how do we do this right? Like, this is all for the good of the order, but there's there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. And normalcy, certainty, like we're just not quite there yet. Yeah. And I should add, for the record, none of this, and certainly none of what I'm expressing, is meant to diminish the the sacrifices and the work of the frontline responders. I have three immediately fa- immediate family members who work in healthcare, who are exasperated, who have put their lives on the line because of what they do, and I, you know, I, I feel for them the most. Um, but this can't continue. Mike, I, uh, I just, I don't look, you're absolutely right. I think we're all tired and we're tired in large part because not that it's gone on so long, but it feels like it could go on much longer. <laughs> and, and again, I don't think we're really constituted to kind of live this way. So let me, let me kind of talk a little bit about what I think got us to this point, And that is in reference to the earlier conversation, and I, I hate sounding this academic and, and, and nerdy, but it but it is important. I think it does offer some guidance on what's happening. There has been a complete bastardization of the concept of freedom that America was founded on, right? When we when we were in an agrarian economy, when we were in an industrial economy, human beings not only needed each other, they wanted each other. We were very interdependent. The digital age has opened up this idea, this belief, and this increasing habit that we have that we don't need each other or that we can build community digitally all over the world. And so this interconnectedness, while we are more interconnected than we were having before, we're not doing it kind of in the way that we have historically as human beings with the entire existence of our species. And, and that what that does is it creates an environment where there's a freedom from each other. And we feel less obligated to each other and there's less empathy for one another. And empathy is probably most experts, sociology experts would suggest that is the definitive evolutionary trait that made human beings successful. That that allowed us to thrive and live is we not only need each other to survive, we want each other. And it doesn't feel that way anymore. The last few years really don't feel like that. And that's because we're changing. We're literally changing as we interact differently. And so freedom becomes something that you are trying to detach from, not engage with. And that explains why in the 1950s, you had people lining up for the polio vaccine and bringing their children with them. And there were tons of lines where the same you know, demographic now is saying, you're not putting that into my kid. If you want to put it into your kid, go ahead, but I'm not going to do it. You take care of it, right? Or why you had, you know, after uh, Pearl Harbor, you had 17 and 16-year-old men lying about their age to say, I'm 18, to go fight off uh, and potentially probably die in foreign lands to protect the country, when at this moment in time, you've got the lowest you know, rates of participation in the armed services than we've ever had in, in our government's history. So we are changing, and we're changing because of these societal uh, changes. And if you believe in freedom, this nebulous concept of freedom, you also the only way society works is if you also have some sort of commitment to one another. That's the only way freedom works, and we've lost and are losing that commitment. And so freedom becomes this kind of more libertarian state where it's like, well, I've got my guns and I've got my cans and I've got my gold bullion and I've got my place out in Montana. Screw y'all. Like I'm leaving. Right. And you you see this with the wealthy, right? Buying places in New Zealand. Like we're out. Yeah. The, the, The wealthy are no longer committed to, to, to the idea of the American experiment either. They're just they're as, as, as everything is coming more globalized and networked, we're losing this sense of place. We're losing this empathy towards one another. And concepts like freedom get very um, dangerous. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we do anything to change, uh, you know, who we are. Don't, don't, over, don't let me overstate that, that statement. But without a commitment to one another, freedom can look awful scary, awful lonely, nasty, brutish, and short, as was once said. Yeah. Yeah. But – Specifically, when it comes to COVID, I, I I completely agree with you, which is not surprising, I suppose. But I think that, as you put it, 
bastardization of the idea of freedom, especially when it comes to COVID, is the legacy of one Donald J. Trump. Well, right? I mean, I mean this, look, that's he, where he this leaned began. into it. We were heading yeah, there right. anyway, right? Yeah. He's just, but this he, is, he, but this is to, to John's point about having an opportunity. That was the opportunity. When this began, we had an opportunity. I wrote a piece about this, about having a, 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 an external cause for unification, for a coming together mm-hmm. uh, that we, you know, in some physical sense, we were denied by the, by, by the nature of a disease that requires we separate ourselves from each other physically. But, but, there was no call to unity at a time of national crisis. And that, to me, that missed opportunity is was the spark that lit the fuse that is currently where we are when it comes to this the, 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 the conspiracization of COVID. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll set aside that. He would have won re-election if he just said wear a mask. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, he would have. I mean, it, you yeah. know, we were right there in the trenches on this thing and looking at the numbers and the way this thing played out. If, if he would have made that call to unity, the economy still would have been, you know, roaring or at least coming back. And he would have been able to pull over a significant share of voters and it would have been a totally different race and history would be moving in a different direction. It's his inability to do that, which is emblematic of the people he represents, right? What do they say in a democracy? You get leaders that reflect the people. And, and again, that's why I think, yeah, I, I, I mean, he, he, look, clearly this guy, Donald Trump, owns a, a massive share of, 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 I think, the ugly characteristics that have emanated from this society. But look, he didn't plant the seeds. He may have watered yeah. it and put some yeah. sun on it, but this stuff is part of the American culture. And that's the real reckoning that we've got to come to is there is something about American culture. Um, which allows for this at this moment in time as our society is changing. And these are not good characteristics for human beings working together. Yeah. John, we should also note of the 13 Democratic governors who are running for election in 2022, all were either elected in 2018 or assumed office mid-pandemic, which means that you know COVID has underpinned most of what they've done since they were elected. So um, final final thoughts on this topic and how should we expect the handling of COVID to impact those races? Yeah, well, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, the effects of inflation and, and people's, you know, members being able to go home and speak directly to the concerns of their, their constituents, top of mind, kitchen table issues. This is exactly, this is another example of, of that's what you need to do if you're, if you're going to come through next year. Uh, being able to go back and say, I'm tired of COVID too. I'm, I'm tired of lockdowns. I'm tired of the changing guidance. I'm tired, you know, one week it's masks, one week we're off, you know, depending on boosters and what really is a fully vaccinated person, right? Like all of these kind of, like, I get it. We're frustrated. We hear you. People want their kids in schools. They want some return to normalcy and certainty. So to the degree that someone can go back and say, I hear you, I'm with you. Let's figure this out together. That is very important. And throwing up your hands and saying, "Well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna look to look to the numbers, and I guess we'll see what happens." It's probably not going to be enough. Um, um, you know, teeing off on, on what what Mike said a little bit, um, I might put a little bit more blame uh, in in President Trump's uh, camp, only because a lot of this springs out of what we talked about earlier: distrust of of institutions. We don't trust teachers. We don't trust doctors. We don't trust. You go down the line. Don't trust the government. Don't trust each other. Um, and where it, where it always leads is President Trump's famous line: "Only I can fix it." Um, that is not <laughs> that is not correct in a global pandemic. Uh, only one person cannot fix it. Um, so I don't. I'm not recommending people go home in the midterms and talk about collective action. Uh, I don't think that's going to get with them where they need to be. But um, I do think some of the blame lies there. And and now we're fully in in listening and how to listening mode. And how do we get people back where they need to be? I would love to hear. Um more politicians do exactly what you just described, which is lead with empathy when they talk about COVID. I would love to hear that. It would, it would take the pressure off the top. Like just, you know, like before you talk about any more restrictions or, or lockdowns or whatever we're going to have to do to get through this, I want to hear you feel what we're feeling. And I think that would make a big difference. I agree. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar. Uh, John, what do you have for us? 
Well, so I'm following a November report from the McKinsey Global Institute, a little wonky, uh, that looks at uh, the global balance sheet and the way we view wealth and growth in the world. Uh, specifically, they look at the historical linkage between economic growth and overall global wealth um, and how that linkage has been broken. So rather than moving in tandem where you see global wealth uh, rising and economic growth going with it, that has been decoupled. And a key driver that they, they highlight in the study is huge gains in real estate values that are driving wealth outside of um, not necessarily productive investments. In fact, two thirds of the global wealth is now tied up in residential or commercial real estate. So the long and short of what they what they find is a world that is wealthier on paper, but also more leveraged, you know, saddled with debt, uh, more exposed to potential drops in real estate values, and perhaps most importantly, less likely to see returns on their investments. Uh, so as we talk about changing nature of work and digitization of our economy, uh, what this report shows is an investment portfolio that doesn't necessarily reflect those changes. So the scenarios they lay out are, are kind of fascinating. Um, Potentially that we we just keep doing what we're doing, which is not great for future productivity, uh, a drop in asset prices, which we've obviously seen before in 2008, or a rebalancing that moves wealth off the sidelines and into more productive job-creating investments. So I want to I highlight something they said in this report about a potential rebalancing, and that is growing out of any potential imbalance would require all economic actors to redirect capital into productive, growth-enhancing investments such as sustainability, affordable housing, digital infrastructure, and yet to be discovered 21st century stores of value. Am I crazy? Or does this sound like the Build Back Better Act? Um, so <laughs> take the two, just to bring us full circle, uh, I think there, there's some important nuggets in that story. As we talk about wealth and inequality, as we talk about uh, the changing nature of work, as we talk about what our economy is going to look like in the 21st century, fascinating stuff. Good, good story. Mike, what do you have for us? Following the story that came out in Defense One, a military paper that um, is highlighting the fact that researchers are saying that the U.S. Army has created a single vaccine against all COVID and SARS variants, um, which means that um, there could be kind of a, a one one stop shop to um, protect us against any sort of mutations off of a coronavirus or a SARS based uh, virus. Uh, protein structure, which is the game changer I think that we've all been looking for. Now, it's in phase one development. It's got a long way to go, and there are a lot of vaccines that don't get past phase one. But the Army has actually began began the research um, two years ago as, as the virus was first identified and um, had a little bit of a longer-term outlook than the Pfizer's and Moderna's and Johnson & Johnson's of the world with no criticism to them. There was a speed to market issue where we needed to kind of get a clamp down on, on the existing coronaviruses. But with this longer approach, they've developed a protein that looks like they said a, a soccer ball, right, with many faces on it, um, which allow the um, protein to attack these uh, the coronavirus and SARS variants in a certain way, which again should be able to eliminate um, any sort of variants or at least a, a long stretch of variants. And um, if we can get that online. There might be an end to all this. Uh, I, I hate to be the optimist because I'm never the optimist, and maybe that's a sign of the end <laughs> times too. But there could be some good news coming out of this. Um, so let's just be hopeful and see what happens with the good old U.S. Army, which of course will create its own situation once people realize would, it was I the government say, that probably created is, it in the first place that's kicking this thing out into the <laughs> into the, uh, the environment. So we'll see. We'll see this what happens. is extremely encouraging news. Yeah, uh, really encouraging news. And we we were talking before the show about you know what is it going to mean that it's kind of come out of the U.S. military. Do you want to comment on that a little bit? I mean, it kind of speaks for itself. I want to hear what your commentary is on it. I just, I think it, you know, look, we, we've talked about the, the partisanization of institutions. The military is one where kind of the American right kind of holds this deep reverence for, but is that going to overcome uh, any hesitancy of a vaccine um, that is, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, the conspiracy theories write themselves. Right of of the U.S. Army developing uh, this 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 vaccine and what we will be quote unquote putting into our bodies and who's being tracked with what and what the real intention of the government is going to be. So again, I'm not too certain how much um, how many people that are unvaccinated currently will be convinced that this is the right way to approach it. But the, the one of the potential potentialities here is that those willing to take the vaccine literally will be basically. Um, eliminated from breakthrough, you know, cases, 
And this truly will be a, a, an epidemic of the unvaccinated almost exclusively, at least as I understand the science. This is fascinating. We'll watch that one closely, obviously. John and Mike, before we go to the after party, <laughs> aka there's more, aka Politicology Plus, uh, where can everyone find you on the internet, John, and follow your work? Absolutely. You can find us at Vote New Dems on Twitter, or you can go to NewDemocratActionFund.com. Are you on Twitter? I am. I am at New Dem John. Come find me. Awesome. Mike? You can hunt me down on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. You'll have to compete with the squirrels. And I'm at Ron Steslo on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>